Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, August 6th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 1 to 22. In the oracles against the nations, the Lord has saved Babylon for last. He has used the Babylonians for his purposes, but their idolatry and their arrogance will lead to their judgment as well. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. A pleasure as always. So, Pastor Agrotowitz, we, we reach, I think, a bit of a climax here in this section of Jeremiah now that finally we get to hear the judgment on Babylon. As you think about the context of, of Jeremiah as a whole, I, you and I haven't visited on Jeremiah yet, so if there's anything you want to bring out about the prophet, his ministry, his book, and then particularly on the section that we're going to look at today, that, that context will be helpful as we get started. Yeah, sure. So Jeremiah, he's a young prophet when he's called. Uh, one scholar I read put his age at 17, so... You can imagine being a teenager and called into the holy ministry. A 628 B.C. seems to be the agreed-upon date when that call comes to him, and his ministry is going to last you know, close to 40 years. Um, and so he has a very lengthy time preaching God's holy word to really a stubborn people. I mean, he is known as the weeping prophet, and there's, there's plenty of reason for that. When you read the book of Jeremiah and just see what he's up against, and he suffers beatings, he is imprisoned, he's thrown in a cistern at one point, eventually ends up in Egypt, and preaches a hard message of repentance to the people. His early tradition, there is an early church tradition regarding his death that might be of interest to some people, um, and it is that once he is in Egypt against his will, mind you, he is stoned to death by his own countrymen. So that's a tradition that floats around the early Church. Uh, one other scholar I read um, puts forth the theory that when Nebuchadnezzar came to take over Egypt, he might have taken Jeremiah back to Babylon, where he died. But uh, there's a little more evidence on the side of the stoning. And in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, does talk about people dying by stoning, which might be a reference to Jeremiah. But it's a very, very hard ministry and, you know, as I said, you can tell why he's called the weeping prophet, given everything that he has to deal with. So he's preaching repentance, warning of Babylon, and today, yes, chapter 50, uh, jumping into this part of the book, Babylon is going to get the press. I mean, this is the nation that God is using, and even calls his servant to do his bidding. But the servant is also going to suffer punishment because the servant has sinned against the Most High God. Mm. Yeah, th this 
Judgment Against Babylon, that's how the, the ESV title reads here in chapter 50. It, the, I think the text has been building toward this, even, even from a geographical perspective. Back in chapter 46, there was the first of these oracles against the nation, starting with Egypt. And gradually, we've been working our way, and it's not a, a perfect order, but but pretty well, we've been working our way from Egypt there in the south and the west, and we've been working our way east and north, and now we arrive at Babylon, and they're going to receive the judgment here. And it, it's going to occupy all of chapter 50. We're just covering the first part of today. So we're going to pick up the rest of that. And then also chapter 51, all of that is going to deal with judgment on Babylon. With the other oracles against the nations here, Pastor Gratis, we've talked a little bit about their their historical background and some of the things that we know about these nations. Babylon, you know, we've been talking about Babylon so often during the book of Jeremiah, it almost seems like it needs no introduction, but maybe it's worth at least a couple of minutes to, to talk about in terms of Babylon historically and, and their interaction with the, the people of God, what's important for, for what we're going to see today. Yeah. Regarding Babylon, they are the superpower um, kind of the, uh, the the new kid on the block, if you will. I had a history professor. He was talking about the Middle East one time, and he said something that made sense. He said, when you look at Middle East history, it's kind of like one big giant game of capture the flag. So if you're looking at the big superpowers in the Bible, you know, Egypt, of course, is the first one that we hear about in Exodus. The um, The Syrians are always going to be a problem for Israel. Then you have Assyria. Now, Assyria will eventually take over the northern kingdom. They're the ones who knock out uh, Samaria. But then the Assyrians are going to be toppled by uh, the Babylonians. And the king, the the big king there is, of course, Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon is a, a fierce opponent, a mighty, powerful army. But the scriptures do make clear, as powerful and mighty as this nation is, it is God's servant used to do his bidding. And then, of course, we're going to hear about the, the, the nations of the north, and we'll talk about that. But yeah, historically, Babylon, they are the ones here on the list, superpower raised up by God to do his bidding of punishing an obstinate nation. All right, let's take a look then and, and see what Jeremiah has to say concerning Babylon here in chapter 50, beginning at the first verse. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans, by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed, her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it, both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken." 
Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. I think I'll pause there. That was through verse 10 of Jeremiah chapter 50. So Pastor Agratowitz, in the first verse, again, the Lord, this is his word. Jeremiah is going to speak it concerning Babylon. And the first thing is that this word is to be proclaimed far and wide about the destruction of Babylon. Right. It's to be a banner. This is not to be concealed. But this law, punishment-oriented preaching, it needs to go forth. And this isn't a time for a prophet to mince words or try to, to put padding down for the fall. But Jeremiah is instructed explicitly by God to declare it, set up a banner, make it known, make it known that Babylon is going to fall. She's going to be taken. Her false gods, Bel and uh, Merodach, mentioned in verse 2, those are going to be dismayed. Her images and her idols are put to shame. And the images are important because, of course, images are... Those are the things that you see. You don't want to look at those things. Whenever there's an image, it has a very powerful effect. I mean, the eyes are a great, great sense of the body to take in all the wrong things. But they're going to go down. The idols are going to go down. The false gods are going to go down. And yes, Jeremiah is commanded by God to make this known like a banner, like a flag. This is going to happen, and God's going to do it. Mm. I think, and I don't, I just to, to throw this out there now, maybe we can come back to it a little bit later, but the fact that God wants the proclamation of Babylon's downfall proclaimed, I mean, he, he wants that to go far and wide. I think that that's pretty significant. I mean, we often think about, you know, we're going to go to the four corners of the world and we're going to proclaim the good news that Christ has won, which that has to entail the defeat of the enemy. And I think, and I don't want to get there too ahead of time, but I just want to mention that now because I think the fact that the Lord wants this proclamation to go forth, that he wants the he wants people to know that Babylon, this great enemy, has been destroyed that goes hand in hand with the proclamation that God's the one that's won the victory. And I, I, I'm just going to throw that out there for now, Pastor Agratowitz. And, and I think we can, that, that seems important. I think we're going to have to come back to that, don't you? Yeah, there's more I want to say about that yeah. a little further down. Um, but, you know, we can, we can talk a little bit about it now since it is at the front part of the chapter. That part of the proclamation sometimes is the hard word of God. There's going to defeat, be defeat, uh, suffering. You're talking about the enemy, and here, here, um, to a degree, it is a temporal enemy, right? It is the nation of Babylon that is going to be fall, that is going to fall and be destroyed, and yeah, that is uh, part of the proclamation, right? That the enemy is defeated. So here, in a temporal sense, I'll, I'll use that that phrase a little loose, but yeah, he's going to preach this because the people need to know about God's just justice and His. There is some comfort here. There is some comfort here to know that the temporal enemies, God can remove them when he wants. I mean, we face such enemies uh, on a temporal level in the world, and to know and to hear that God is going to take them down uh, would have been a great source of comfort to the Israelites who are staring at this enemy, hearing about this enemy, and, and they, had to, they had to have known this is a military might, a force that can only be defeated by the will and gracious act of God to do it. So it would have provided a lot of comfort to know their God was still watching over them, and he will take care of the enemy in his own time, in his own way. So I think, yes, the defeat of the enemy, here being Babylon, would have been a tremendous source of comfort to them, and a reminder that God cares about his people, 
God keeps his promises, and always at the end of the day, the enemy, whoever the enemy is, does not have the upper hand. Mm -hmm. Now, this enemy, Babylon, is going to be destroyed, the Lord says, from a nation that's come up out of the north. So uh, normally in the book of Jeremiah, Babylon was the enemy coming against Judah out of the north. But here here it's got to be somebody else. Who's this nation coming out of the north against Babylon? Yeah, right. The Persians are coming. Okay, so the Persians. So capture the flag. Let's talk about that analogy. It's gone from um, uh, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and now here come the Persians. We're going to hear a little later on about um, the walls, okay, the walls being uh, broken down. I'm, I don't recall off the top of my head what verse that was, but there's this talk about Babylon's, uh, her walls being torn down. And I was doing some reading about this, and Nebuchadnezzar, already in his time as king, looked to the north, and he was already you know, sensing, okay, uh, this power rising. And it, the Medes and the Persians, who are very close, very similar, it, it go, the Medes will come, but they will kind of be absorbed into this great Persian empire. Cyrus is a king we hear about in the scriptures. He plays an important part, and he is sometimes referred to as Cyrus the Mede. Nebuchadnezzar knows this nation is rising, and he's going to have walls erected. And apparently, based on my reading, you can still see some of that wall today that Nebuchadnezzar erected to keep out the Persians. So talk in Jeremiah 50 about the walls coming down is, uh, you know, reference to the defenses of Babylon will not stand against this nation that God is raising from the north. So that's a little bit of a long answer, but yeah, the Persians are going to come, the flag is going to go to them, and as powerful as Babylon is, once again, you know, God is going to raise another nation, knock down one, raise up another, and, um, you know, accomplish his will as he sees fit. Now, as a result of this, we hear some of the Lord's word concerning what this will mean for his own people. And and unlike some of the other oracles against the nations, where it's just been almost completely focused on what the Lord is going to do to, say, Edom or Moab or Damascus— here, the destruction of Babylon means something for the people of God. And that, that makes good sense because Judah has been exiled there. And, and particularly in verse, verses 4 and 5, what's going to happen is that it's not only going to be for the people of Judah, but for the people of Israel, that this defeat of Babylon is going to mean a return for the people of God. Right. The enemy is knocked out of the way, and so the people can come back. And, you know, this when I read this passage, I think about Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, those books of the Bible have a lot. They are the, uh, the, the prime books detailing the return of the Israelites. So they're taken out of Babylon, they're sent into exile, and the lament over their exile we hear in Lamentations, but they're going to get to come back. Because Babylon is out of the picture, right, the enemy is gone and they can come back. So that means something tremendous for God's people. This is, this is kind of harkening back to what we talked about earlier. Uh, to hear about the defeat of the enemy is a great blessed thing for the people of God, and something that we, we can't tire of hearing in the Church. It, you know, we'll talk about the spiritual you know, dimensions and sense of that in a little bit. But here, yeah, to echo the point that you brought up, and as we hear in Ezra and Nehemiah, Babylon out of the picture, that's a great thing, because now that means we can go back. And uh, Cyrus the king, he of course is going to issue that great decree, allowing the Jews to go back and uh, take part in life in their homeland. 
Uh, with those verses and, and thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah and, and that context of the you know the physical return from the exile, which the Lord promises through His prophets, Jeremiah offering that promise as well. Is there is there more there that we can see beyond just that physical return that happens, you know, a generation later? Oh, I think so. I think there always is. I mean, even a discussion on Babylon, there's much more here than just the temporal nation of Babylon. But whenever you hear this idea of restoration and returning, coming back, you know, I can't help but hear that. And I think Christian readers, you know, generally across the board hear it as well. This is a reference to the Church. God's people united, made one. God's people obtained by the blood of Christ. This restoration that happens amongst His people on account of Jesus and His sacrificial death. And lest someone think that maybe I'm making too far of a jump, the Lord does tell us that the Scriptures do testify to Him. And He's talking about all Scriptures, not just some. And so we are, we are by no way a fool to look at this passage and hear the word restoration and return and think about maybe Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel going out to all nations, the one holy Christian apostolic church that exists throughout all nations as one, all that stuff. You know, we, we should be thinking about that when we read a text like this and we hear God talking about bringing Israel, the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, uh, we should have in the back of our minds, or excuse me, maybe even the front of our minds, that church, the true children of Abraham, where Paul, the Jew of Jews himself, uh, says that a child of Abraham is one who has faith, faith in Christ. And so there's there's the true restoration that, that certainly applies not only to us, but uh, people throughout time. That's the true restoration that we, we want to be thinking about, embracing and thanking God for establishing. Well, I mean, I think that the language in verses 4 and 5, you know, harkens to other passages in Jeremiah that certainly are, are preaching of Christ as well. I mean, the, the mention of the, the covenant here in verse 5 brings to mind par- perhaps the most famous passage from the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, where the Lord promises that he's going to make that new covenant with both of these houses, the house of Israel and the house of, of Judah. Excuse me, of Judah. That's. So, I mean, I think yeah. To to connect this not only to the return from exile that happens under Ezra and Nehemiah, but also to ultimately the gathering of God's people into His church still today is is, is spot on and fits with perfectly with what Jeremiah has been doing. Now, more more connections here in this text to other language from Jeremiah. The Lord calls His people lost sheep. He brings up false shepherds here as well. I think that that sounds like it connects back to Jeremiah 23, another one of those, I think, famous passages from Jeremiah where the Lord talks about, you know, woe to the shepherds who've led his people astray. And then he promises that that he'll raise up that righteous branch from the line of David. Now, what, what's being talked about in verses six and seven and these lost sheep and their, their shepherds leading them astray? Sure. Well, when it comes to shepherds leading them astray, yeah, that's the, that's the golden chapter, Jeremiah 23. The false prophets who are scattering the flock, driving them away, not attending to them as they should be attended to. And these are the shepherds that say all the wrong things. Instead of speaking what they should say, the disaster that's coming, the need for repentance, you know, their proclamation is going to, going to be different, and it's not what the Lord is telling them to preach. You see the phrase, lost sheep, and all the sheep, you know, analogies and metaphors and so forth, 
that we, we see in the Gospels. I mean, that speaks volumes to us, that God's people are always like lost sheep unless he himself pulls them and draws them into the fold. The idea we hear in verse 6, from mountain to hill they have gone. You know, I was teaching through First Kings here at the, at the school. I teach religion here. In First Kings 20, we do hear about the people, the Syrians, talking about gods associated with various um, topographical areas like mountains and hills. And so the notion of gods attached to like hills and mountains was very much uh, alive and well at this time. And so from mountain to hill, these are wandering people who don't know who they are and to whom they belong. It's, it's, it's a sad state to not realize you're in the flock of God, but instead you're a searcher, you're seeking, but not having the truth, not knowing the foundation upon which you stand. And that's the, that's the situation of these poor people here, because the false shepherds have told them the wrong thing, and they're wandering and searching, but never able to arrive at that golden truth that Jeremiah is, is attempting to, to steer these people towards. So um, the enemies, the ones who devour them, say, we are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, which is, which is true. They have sinned. Okay, uh, they have sinned against their habitation. So their habitation and refuge is the Lord. But when you're wandering around, following the false doctrine, being blown about like a ship on the sea, that's a sad place to be. And sadly, the false prophets have done a terrific job, as they always do, steering the people away from the truth. Mm. I mean, it's, it's. I think in these verses, you do see first of all the the fault of the false prophets, as you were saying that. You know they have led the people astray, and a big part of Jeremiah's ministry was combating these false prophets and proclaiming, no, what they're saying is not true. Here's what the Lord actually says, repent and believe this. Tragically, they don't. And you see, I think, in these verses and throughout the book of Jeremiah as well, that yes, the false prophets have done this. They have led the people astray. But the people who have listened and believed the lies still bear the guilt, right? I mean, they've forgotten their fault, which is tragic, and, and the false shepherds are not going to get off the hook, but neither are the, the people that have believed the lie. They don't get off the hook either. Now, the Lord is going to show compassion, which is what, what is here, but I mean, I think within these verses, you see the Lord is going to bring the judgment on the false shepherds. He's brought the judgment against his people who believed their lies by sending them into exile. And then he's also going to bring the judgment against those who have devoured them, their enemies, which is, it's quite something, you know, on the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they are the Lord's servant in taking Judah into exile, but their ruthlessness in doing so, their, you know, lack of faith in the Lord themselves, all of these things that they've done that are evil, the fact that they were executing the Lord's judgment doesn't get them off the hook for their own sins either. And so this, you know, this excuse that's given in verse seven doesn't really hold sway either. I mean, it's just, this is one of the things we've been seeing in these chapters is that all people fall under the judgment of the Lord. And it sounds like that's what's about to happen to Babylon as well in these verses. Yeah, right. No one gets off the hook. And you cannot stand before God in the day of judgment and say, well, you know, I would have believed, but the devil made me do it. <laughs> you know, that is not an excuse that flies before God. Each man must bear his own load, we'll be here in, in Galatians, and you do. You bear that load. You are accountable for your sin. Though Babylon was God's servant, and the Lord makes that clear, 
she is still accountable for her sin under the mighty law of God. And even if we can't quite, perhaps, understand that mystery in our minds, it's true, the law condemns, and all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. And the lying prophets, they're good, they're slick, they always are, and they'll tell you all the right things that your itching ears want to hear. In Jeremiah's day, that's no exception. But the text, they have forgotten their fold, okay? They, the people, have actively forgotten the flock that they should not have forgotten. They're told not to forget it. There's that word in the Bible, remember, remember, but how often do we forget? And so a text that is, yes, everyone is indicted by the law, and everybody needs deliverance and and should be seeking God and His mercy. And, you know, that's really the essence of Jeremiah's preaching throughout his book, that an obstinate people would repent and turn once again to the God who brought them out of Egypt, delivered them, and calls them his very own children. Yeah, that, that preaching continues here as as he tells the people of Judah and Israel, flee from the midst of Babylon, go out from the land of the Chaldeans, which I, I mean, you know, there is, again, some of that good news that's being spoken to the people of God who've been in exile in Babylon, who've seen the horrors that Babylon brought upon Jerusalem and the temple and the whole land of Judah. Now to be told, you know, get out of there, leave, that's, that's good news for them. And the Lord then, he, he says what's going to come to Babylon. You get this, you know, the stirring up, bringing against Babylon, a gathering of great nations from the north country. Again, so Persia's at the lead, but it sounds like other nations are going to be involved. Uh, what, what's here in these, these last couple of verses that we read, verses 8, 9, and 10, uh, before we go to our break? Sure, yeah. So even though Babylon is the mighty superpower, thinking that you can go there and become plugged in find you a nice place to live, and just abide in this nation that just seems unstoppable. That's not going to work. That's not going to save you, and God is saying flee, because the devastation is going to come. And by devastation, she's going to be barren. This is a devastation that's going to leave this place desolate. Get out and go away. Okay, that that's one, verse 8, one point verse talking about. Okay, Now, a gathering of great nations in verse 9. That's a very interesting verse, um, because the term for gathering, if you're reading that in the Hebrew, it's this term kahal. And, you know, I try to stay in my Hebrew, and I, I read it just about every day. And when I saw the word kahal, the, my mind immediately wanted to translate it with the word congregation, because elsewhere I've seen it as congregation. And then when you read it, it sounds like a congregation of, of great nations. Well, that, that sounds very church-like to me. It's also translated in the Greek Bible sometimes as synagogue. Hmm. So it does have a, an ecclesiastical connotation to it, if you will. Gathering is certainly appropriate, but it does kind of tip some of us off, at least me, there, there might be a little more to this than just this, this surface level, if you will, gathering of the nations. We talked about the Persians coming, and indeed they're going to come and they are going to be, you know, a collection of nations forged into this mighty power, and they're going to come ransack Babylon, and there's nothing, there's nothing Babylon is going to be able to do, but she is going to be plundered. That's another verb that shows up a lot. The enemy, the enemy who seems to have everything, at the end, even what they think they have, is going to be plundered or taken away. 
And we're going to see how that continues to be preached here in Jeremiah chapter 50 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking Jeremiah chapter 50 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 6th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 1 to 22 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz, Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we were looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 50, and now we jump to the second half of our text, beginning at verse 11 in Jeremiah 50. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, Though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be an utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds." Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around, all you who bend the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in time of harvest. Because of the sword of the oppressor, every one shall turn to his own people, and every one shall flee to his own land. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has gnawed at his bones. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. That's through the end of our text for today through Jeremiah 50, verse 20. So we begin reading there, Pastor Agrotowitz, in verse 11 which speaks of, of Babylon, you know, rejoicing, exulting as they were plundering God's people. I think there, there's a theme here that we've seen throughout these oracles against the nations that there's a level of pride that's there. And it sounds like Babylon not only was proud of, of all of her destructions, prideful before the Lord, but even as she was doing you know, the punishing of God's people, it's like she enjoyed it. She reveled in the cruelty that she was bringing is what it sounds like. They do enjoy it. This, you know, as the enemies of God, they do. They do enjoy seeing the the church fall, uh, and I'll, I'll 
use that term loosely as well, because the Church doesn't fall, of course, the Lord builds it, but I think, I think the hearers probably know what I mean. Whenever it looks like the Church is getting beaten and defeated in the eyes of the enemy, that's a great thing to them. Babylon, to see Israel, her enemy, be plundered and uh, things taken from her, sure, that's great for Babylon, who's just prideful and, and just really just puffing out, puffing out her chest. As I was reading this, I'm, I'm also reading a book right now about Russia and World War II and, mm. and even Nazi Germany. If I, I'll just bring this in for a little bit, because this, this book tries to get into the minds of, of Hitler and Stalin and just their deep hatred really for one another um, and, and Bolshevism and how Hitler just had such a deep hatred for Bolshevism, Jews, and so forth, it just blinded them, and just he he just took pleasure in seeing the death and all the bloodshed of his enemy. Okay, and so seeing Babylon be like this, this is the nature of man and his sinful, his sinful old Adam, and how when it just runs amok, it's it it it's almost irrational to think about, but they're just blinded by their rage and they just enjoy seeing the enemies fall. And one other note, you know, when Babylon is on top, and she is prideful, she is very arrogant. Uh, a note on Joseph Stalin at the beginning of Germany's attack on Russia, uh, there are accounts that he just thinks they're now going to get destroyed and lost, and the great communist cause is going to go away. And onlookers said he just was very weak, depressed, even had thoughts he was going to be deposed and remo removed and so forth. But as soon as the, the tides turn and Russia begins to drive the Germans back and they begin to advance and the victory seems to be, wow, we may actually come out of this thing, then one onlooker says he begins to strut around like a rooster. And isn't that how we are? Whenever we think we're winning and the victory is ours, boy, we can just puff out our chest and hold our heads high and just think we're the greatest of the great. And that's Nebuchadnezzar right here. Um, but as we know, pride comes before the fall, and that's going to happen. Well, the, and the fall is described in, in great detail here. It, it comes because of the Lord's wrath in verse 13. And in verses 14 and following, it's described in, in great military terms. I mean, you, you can imagine some of these these things being shouted by a military commander. But I think what we should probably recognize for us, especially theologically, is that the military commander here, the, the general of this army, that's the Lord. Uh, we this is a pretty common theme I think in the scriptures that sometimes we miss Pastor Agradowitz. What why is that important to to recognize the Lord as he says here in verse oh, 18 that he's the Lord of hosts. Why is that so important for us? Yes, it is because he's a god of battle. He is uh, an Ishmaelhamah, a man of war. That's in Exodus 15 and that just he rephrased I mean I just I spit it out cuz it stuck with me when I heard it. But yes, he's a God who wins the battles. And that I think that is hugely important for us Christians. I mean, we're used to seeing Jesus, you know, in, in the robe and the sheep, and he maybe he's got a staff, or he's inviting children coming to him. And that's fine. That imagery, I mean, is supported by Scripture, and it's very comforting. But he's also a God of battle and a God of war. And we, we know the phrase, church militant, that the saints inside of heaven always have to fight. But who is our general, to take your turn? Well, it's the Lord our God. And I, I think that is tremendously tremendously comforting for us when we look around in the world and it looks like the enemies are always winning, right? The governments, the, the evil magistrates and rulers throughout the world are always getting the upper hand and the church is always getting defeated to hear 
that God is the, the Lord of armies, and they do his bidding, and he just only has to speak, and he can have legions of angels doing what he wants to do, that should put our conscience at ease, that the rulers, the temporal authorities of this world, they think they are in control, and you know, they, will, they will gather and come into a room with all the pomp you could, you could look for, but they're not. And Babylon is going to taste that, that very bitter pill. She can frolic and think she's great on top of the world, but hey, guess what? God has set his sights on her, and using this, this battle terminology is it's comforting for us to know the victory is in his hands. It's neat to think about. I mean, I like studying battles and histories and, and armies and so forth, but here the army is of God. It's going to win. The quivers are going to be empty. Her walls, that verse I was searching for earlier, there it is at 15. All her walls to keep out the Persians are not going to help, because now this superpower is going to come, and Babylon really is going to get a taste of her own medicine. What she has done to others is indeed going to be done to her, and the Lord is going to take vengeance. So here we see the doctrine of vengeance come into play, a doctrine that is great, a doctrine that we should, you know, I keep using this word comfort, but we do draw comfort from this, that when you, we see the enemies always prevailing, it's short-term, short-lived. God is still in control, and he will execute vengeance. He will do it perfectly and in his own time for the good of his people. Well, and we see the good of his people come out in the last part of our section for today. You know, the Lord uses, he returns to that sheep imagery for his own people. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. And, and he mentions particularly Assyria, which that's farther in the past. Assyria has already been taken care of. The Lord reminds Babylon. Now Babylon's just followed in those same footsteps. Very, very vivid image. You know, the king of Babylon has gnawed his bones. That's that's quite, quite striking. But the Lord's going to make good on his promise. He is going to take vengeance on Babylon such that Israel will be restored and the, the picture of restoration here in verses 19 and 20 is, I mean, it's complete. It's it's quite an amazing picture, particularly, you know, imagine looking for sin and and there's none, none to be found because the Lord has, has forgiven it. Uh, show us, take us into this picture of restoration in those last verses of our text. Right, and it, it might be a good time to kind of back out of this and see this from perhaps a, a, a bird's eye view or a broader perspective, but... Um, Israel is hunted like a sheep. We've kind of talked about that, how God's people are compared to sheep. The term remnant shows up here, without sin. I'd mentioned earlier about the Church of God, and here we're seeing a picture of that, a remnant. I mean, that is a term that has a very broad application in the Bible, and it is a term referring to those who God has kept for himself, his people, his believers, through thick and thin they belong to him. He has kept them, and they are his. And it's a term that applies every bit to the Church today, as it applies to the believers in Jeremiah's time. Now, I'd like to segue into, into Babylon again, as she is portrayed in the book of Revelation. When you're looking at a prophecy like this one in Jeremiah, um, it might be helpful to see it as a picture, where in this picture you see things in the foreground, but you also see things in the background as well. So the foreground to run with this metaphor, the foreground would be Babylon, her armies, the Persians coming, taking it over, 
the restoration would be, you know, Ezra Nehemiah stuff and the people coming back under Cyrus' decree. And, and that's all, you know, fine, good, great biblical history that every Christian should, should know. But on a bigger level, we see Babylon talked about in the book of Revelation very vividly. And there in chapter 18 in Revelation, you know, once again, Babylon is getting all the press. Evil, God's enemies, all the hostility. Babylon is the culmination of all of it and the great symbol of the hostile forces that are raging against God and his people. And, you know, if you have a Bible with a concordance, read chapter 18. And you see all these references to Jeremiah. I was going to take time to write them down, and I eventually just put down my pen, because there are just so many. It's like every verse is referring to Jeremiah when you're reading Revelation 18, first century uh, Rome stuff written by, of course, St. John. But there, of course, when he's talking about Babylon, he's not talking about the you know, historic Babylon, but he's pulling from Jeremiah to do it which should tip us off that when we're reading Jeremiah, there's something more going on here. There's something in the background of the picture to whatever foreground we see in a historical sense. So when you look at it like that, when you hear God talk about pardoning sin and looking and seeing no sin, this is extraordinary. But of course, when he's looking upon his people in Christ, his baptized believers, he's looking upon people whose sin has been taken away. It's been washed by his blood. They are forgiven. The iniquity is not counted against them. They are justified. His remnant, his people that he has kept for himself, his church from all the nations, that holy Christian apostolic body, is without sin. Why? Because of his only begotten one, whose sacrifice at the cross has sealed it for us. His blood has paid for it, and that's why we are restored, and that's why the church is uh, washed and forgiven, and we need not be afraid. And it is one. It is united. It is one with him. We, you know, far from seeing it, and we cannot go out in the world and number all those who belong to God, but of course God can, and he declares his church to be his body, and he knows even the hairs on the heads of those who belong to him. With that connection to the book of Revelation, then, as, as we read about Babylon here, and I like the way you put it with foreground background, you know, in the foreground, seeing these historical events and what the Lord did in time and in history through Nebuchadnezzar and then through the Persian army in that game of capture the flag. But then in the background, seeing what John does with this in the book of Revelation, like how, how then should we understand Babylon in the book of Jeremiah here, in, in terms of what that says for us. And I mean, should we be reading Babylon and Jeremiah 50 and thinking, okay, this is what the Lord is doing to the enemies of the church still today? Oh, I think so. Yes, I absolutely think so. Right. I think we need to read every prophetic book and really appreciate it and take, take to heart God's work in that historical setting, time, and space. And then ask ourselves, well, how does this work and apply to us today? You can talk about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, but we also read in Revelation 18 a lot about Babylon and how that, what that symbolizes and so forth. So I absolutely think we can read a text, and should, like Jeremiah, and see the battle terminology and God's war that he continues to wage and indeed has won against those enemies who still rage and persecute the people of God. It's always a rage and a persecution that is short-lived for his saints who live now 
And even should they die the martyr's death, they do so only to live. And it's, I'll use the word again, comforting. Comforting to know the Lord does win the day. The battle is his to win. The war has been won. The ruler has been cast out. Babylon has fallen. Uh, We're still fighting. We're still the church militant, but we know how it all turns out. And to hear God use all this past tense language in the Bible, that yes, it's already done, it's already completed. When we read such passages and think, well, why am I fighting? Why are we still having to deal with persecution and lies and murders and so forth? Because when the Lord makes a promise in the future, it is as good as done. You can speak of it in the past tense because God has established his covenant. God has made a promise. And when he promises you, he promises me something in the future. It's as good as done. And, it's, and, and we, can, we can take that to the bank to the degree we can even speak of it in the past tense. Yes, it's done. The Lord has said it. And that's all we need. I want to, from that, jump back to, to what we were we started to talk about briefly at the beginning, where the Lord gives to Jeremiah, declare this, you know, don't conceal it, set it up as a banner. And the news that is to be set up is that Babylon is is done for. Babylon is is finished. Which again, I think when when we think of, you know, what should we proclaim as Christians, it is that you know, Jesus is my savior. He died and rose for me. And that's not wrong. I mean, that's we should be telling people, Jesus died and rose for you. But this this aspect of the proclamation, that the fact Jesus died and rose for for you means that your enemies are defeated. We shouldn't lose that either. And, and we can be bold in proclaiming that today in the face of persecutions, in the face of those who do mean the church harm, in the face of our own sin and, and the devil's temptations against us, to proclaim to them, you know, you're done for, you're defeated. And, and to announce that to the world, there is, a, to use the word, and it's, it's a, we should use it, to, there is great comfort in that to recognize that, you know, I— even in the midst of the troubles, the trials of this life, Christ has won the victory. And and this is, I mean, it's all over our hymnody. It's all over our liturgy. I'll just mention one place that comes to mind. When If, if you use in Lutheran service book, Divine Service, setting one or setting two, one of the hymns that we have as an option for the hymn of praise is, this is the feast of victory. When, when we come together in the church, what do we do? We sing the Lord's praises for his victory, even in the midst of when it looks like, you know, and the battle is still going on. We are still the church militant. But on, on Sunday mornings, we come together and we sing, this is the feast of victory. God's won and it's it's done because he's promised it. And so we're going to sing about it right now, even while we're, while we're still fighting. I mean, I, you know, I, I know you like military things and all that. And I think like this is maybe a, an aspect that sometimes we've lost in our world today, but we need to reclaim this this fighting aspect, this this military aspect. And we should take comfort because God won the battle for us. I'll let you talk. I've talked a while. Well, no, that's all great stuff, yes. And I, I love This is the Feast, and we sing it here quite a bit as well. But um, I almost think it is necessary that we preach and bring out this battle terminology and the biblical teaching that God is the, the Lord of hosts. And what does that mean to our people? Uh, maybe too often, you know, we get the idea of Jesus as just being, you know, kind of what I talked about earlier, just nice maybe even a little little delicate, and we see these, these, these images of him that put it in a very peaceful light. And again, that's not wrong, okay? That, that's, that's very helpful to us as well. But this other side of things, that God is a God who knocks down nations with a breath. God is a God who removes the most tyrannical, evil, wicked, 
nation with a breath. When he says it, it's going to happen. And I think especially, you know, in these times, you know, you know, I'll bring you know, looking at world events and how governments and authorities, what they've done through. Well, you know, we'll bring up the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and all these sorts of things. OK, uh, you know, we are, I, I think, very fortunate to be in the state of Texas. Other states have not fared so well. And to be living there where even your worship life has been radically affected. Um, governors rulers have been issuing decrees that that i would say that's out of bounds they should not be doing it to be living under regimes like that it is very important to hear this proclamation that look they're not in control god sees what they're doing and fear not dear christian god can remove them with just a word or if a nation you're living in a nation where the ruler once again one more tyrant and one more uh, you know, authoritative body that is opposed to the gospel. Well, you know, guess what? God has dealt with this so many times. He can and will do it again. Fear not, dear Christian. I think it's a great message to bring to people that, yes, we submit to our authorities as we should, but make no mistake, when the Lord decrees their time is up, their time is up. And the Herods of this world are removed when he says so. And that, that brings a, a, a lot of peace of mind. It should to Christian people, lest we become so anxious and so afraid, thinking that perhaps God has dropped the ball. He hasn't. He hasn't. You know, one of the things, um, I won't take up too much time, but one of the things that Jeremiah had to preach that was not taken well by the other prophets and the people was that, you, O Zedekiah, need to submit to the yoke of Babylon. And I had another Bible flipped open. It's in chapter 27. The readers can read. But the people are instructed to submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. God will remove it when he's ready. But for right now, you are to you know, submit and listen. Um, I'll just read this one verse. If any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord. That's 27 verse 8. So sometimes... God's decree is to do that. This is who you are going to serve. And those reasons for doing that belong to him. But the time will come when Nebuchadnezzar's day is over, when Herod's day is over. And, you know, to come back full circle, that's a message that people need to hear, because it does tie into the gospel, the victory, the overcoming of the enemy, temporally speaking and certainly spiritually speaking as well. Yeah, I, I, that thought had crossed my mind, too, because it, it's not just in chapter 27. There's, as you said, several times in the book of Jeremiah where this is what the prophet says to Zedekiah particularly. You need to surrender to Babylon because that's where the Lord is sending you. But that time is over now. And, and here is is the message of judgment against Babylon, the who has set themselves as the Lord's enemy. They They went past what the Lord had given them to do. They did not submit to him in true faith toward him, and so they too will be judged for being an enemy of him and an enemy of his people. And, and there is great comfort to see the Lord deal with the enemies of his people, to see that, you know, and, and to see that the word of judgment that he speaks against his own people is not his final word. But there is this word of, of grace, this word of gospel that comes that deals with the enemy. I, I'm, I'm curious, as, as you were talking, to, to hear you talk a little bit more, because you, you brought this up and we kind of pulled back so we could tackle some of this together at the end. 
in verse nine, where you brought up the bringing against Babylon again, not just Persia, but this gathering of great nations and those the the words that are involved there that often apply to the church. Can can you dig into that one a little bit more and make some of those connections that you you held back on a little bit earlier? I'd love to because here comes the church militant. God is raising the church. God is building the church, and the enemy will not overcome her. In fact, the Lord Jesus says not even the gates of hell will overcome her. As bad as Babylon is, she will not win. So if you think about Jeremiah preaching and proclaiming Christ and his church, now you are hearing the might and strength of the holy Christian church, the body of believers as they belong to God. Um, And for Jeremiah to talk about here, they're coming, I'm coming, sounds like to me this is, I mean, we hear from the New Testament the church is obtained by the blood of Christ, that this is another prophecy to Christ, and the nations that are going to come, when he, he dies, his blood is shed, covers all people for all time, and on account of his blood shed, the ones called out of, the ones who belong to him, the remnant, are those believers, washed by the blood, and they believe it. God is raising his church, and he's always raising his church. And this is another point for us Christians who feel at times defeated. Our congregation is shrinking and are on the verge of closing, or maybe even did close. Throughout the world, God is always building. He's always building his church. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians when he talks about, he, he compares the people of God to a building and even a body being you know joined together and has all its parts. Uh, the, the body stuff does uh, come in Ephesians, but certainly 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the church being a body. But point the point here, God is building and increasing. And to hear about the church in military terms, the church, it's like saying, oh devil, the church is coming. Mm-hmm. Oh devil, the church is coming. Um, my son will come in the flesh, and there's not a darn thing you can do about it, because he will come and he will do my bidding, and he will go to the cross. And even on the cross, we hear those demonic cries of, you know, if you are the Christ, save yourself, come down. No, that's not how it's going to work. And right when the enemy thinks they've scored the great victory, ah, the corpse is there, yes, he's dead, it's, it's the complete reversal. It's the complete reversal. That is the victory. Uh, he has done it. It is finished. And the centurion in Mark, that's where he says, truly this was the Son of God, a confession we can't let go of today. Pastor Grados, we have just about two minutes left on the morning. Reflecting on this section of Jeremiah 50, a final thoughts, and again, how this text uh, points us to Christ. Help us to see that. Right. It points us to Christ by showing us the great victory. And when we think about a victory, we need to think about what God has done for us in terms of sin, which is the, the perennial problem this side of heaven that we have to deal with. Our old Adam rages daily. We fight things. I mean, I was talking about, you know, COVID and lockdowns, and my goodness, how many things do we have to battle inwardly? The temptations that strike us so deep in our hearts and in our souls, and, you know, Christians who are baptized who go to church still battle and fight these things, and it so often can seem as if the feelings are so powerful, maybe I am lost, and I have, you know, I I haven't won, I, I haven't done enough, and so forth. God wins the victory, and in such times, our focus is where our faith puts our focus, which is our faith looks to Christ, it looks to what he has done. Um, Christus Victor, the victory of Jesus, really is a wonderful, sweet message of consolation and peace, that in my fightings and my struggles, hey, it is okay. Your sin is forgiven. 
The temptations are for naught. Christ has died for you. He has won the victory, just as God has removed Babylon. He has taken away, taken away your sin, pardoned all of it. You're at peace, and you're the remnant. You're the remnant. You're the one who belongs to him on account of what he has done. And that, that has to be the focus. Who has won the battle? Who has done the work? My goodness, it's our Lord and Savior. And a praise be to God for that. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 1 to 22. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. Anytime, Pastor Apple. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. The series on Jeremiah is almost near the end of the book, but we will be starting Lamentations after that. If you have any questions looking in advance to that series, please send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or use the app. The open mic feature allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.